Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and that was a really big breath, and this is episode 110 for the ultimate third of May 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the pioneer anomaly within the solar system mysteries that were solved by pseudoscience series, part two. Imagine, if you will, that NASA has sent two spacecraft into the solar system launched in 1972 and 1973. Their sexy encounters with Jupiter and Saturn over a mere two years and six years later, respectively, they were alone and pretty much forgotten by most of the world that had watched their launch, though they continued to return data to interested scientists. It was only when something weird was observed, first as early as the 1980s, but not seriously investigated until 1994, that the world began to again take notice, and, as is often the case of something unexplained, everyone's pet idea came out of the woodwork. The something weird was where the spacecraft actually were in space. Scientists tried to figure out every single force acting on the spacecraft, from the gravity of all major bodies to how the very few particles they encountered in interplanetary space would affect the spacecraft by acting as a drag force. But what scientists observed was that the Pioneer spacecraft were thousands of kilometers closer to the sun than they should be. That sounds like a lot, and on the scale of Earth, that's a lot but it's tiny relative to the distances that Pioneer 10 and 11 had traveled so far and for so long. In episode 108, I gave some practical examples of measurement uncertainty. These were all factored in, as was the possibility of a software glitch, as was outgassing by the instruments, as was flecks of paint being chipped off. And each new, independent calculation showed what the old calculations did, that the Pioneer spacecraft were not where they were supposed to be. The force acting on the spacecraft must have been tiny. It was only 8.74 plus or minus 1.33 times 10 to the negative 10 meters per second squared. For those of you who have no idea what this number means, that's about 100 billion, with a B, times less than the force of gravity at Earth's surface. It's incredibly tiny, but over time, it adds up. And it was still adding up, as in when the spacecraft were first observed to be in a different location, or at a different distance away than they were supposed to be, and then they were measured later, they were more off from where they were supposed to be. It wasn't a one-time thing. Whatever was affecting the Pioneer craft was still affecting them, and it was still affecting them at about the same amount as a function of time. I know what you're thinking now. What about the Voyager spacecraft? The Voyagers did not show this effect, but they really couldn't. It certainly would have been lost in the noise below the level of measurement accuracy. The reason is that the Pioneer spacecraft were spin-stabilized, meaning that the spacecraft physically spins using gyroscopic principles to stay oriented the way we wanted it to. Because of that, it was much easier to predict exactly how the physical environment, like high-speed particles from the sun called the solar wind, would affect the spacecraft. Voyagers were not. They only had thrusters to orient themselves the way they needed to be oriented. Because thruster firings were common on the Voyager craft, tiny, unpredictable changes happened, and these were larger than the tiny acceleration that the Pioneer craft showed. 
Other spacecraft that we've sent out have shown inconclusive results, again due to the level of measurement uncertainty. So it's really the Pioneer craft that are the only things, for now, that we have to go on. For many years, we simply didn't know what was causing it. There were many mainstream ideas, but there were also many non-mainstream ideas. As is typical when we don't know something, or why something is the way it is, argument from ignorance kicks in, and the crazies come out with their own quote-unquote theories. There were some more mainstream ideas that still may fall under the category of out there, although not impossible. Papers were published with titles like Scalar Field Models from the Pioneer Anomaly to Astrophysical Constraints, or Pioneer Anomaly, Gravitational Pull Due to the Kuiper Belt. Another was Discrete Fields and the Pioneer Anomalous Acceleration. Perhaps a more esoteric title was A Mirror World Explanation for the Pioneer Spacecraft Anomalies. That particular paper proposed that hypothetical mirror matter would account for the anomaly. Perhaps the largest or the one that had the most support was MOND, M-O-N-D, the abbreviation for Modified Newtonian Dynamics. As I indicated in episode 108, gravity is the worst measured of the four fundamental forces of the standard model of physics. And we know that Newton's formulation is not 100% accurate because of relativity. The MOND proponents argued that the Pioneer spacecraft were so far away that what they offered us was now a much larger baseline against which to measure the force of gravity. It's like trying to estimate when you're going to arrive at a location after only traveling for a few seconds versus traveling for a few hours. You have a much longer period of time and distance, and so you can get a better estimate. In Mond's case, the tenet is that Newton's formulation for gravity works because the terms in his equations dominate all other terms. But there's a tiny addition sign in there that he didn't know about, and it's so small that the effect can only be measured when you measure over either huge distances or huge masses. Incidentally, during the 1990s, Mond was the main competing model against dark matter, but dark matter won out as the explanation for why stars on the outskirts of galaxies were orbiting as fast as they were. But Mond was proposed as an explanation for the pioneer anomaly during its height, before the dark matter theory had won over it in cosmology. Another model was simply errors in observations or recording of data, but that was ruled out when numerous completely independent analyses all came to the same conclusion. Another win for peer review and independent replication. A third explanation was clock acceleration. This follows the same premise as Mond that our current theories break down when you get to the very large. In this case, if the universe is indeed expanding, then there is an increase in the background gravitational potential, which, based on relativity in a changing gravity field, time changes. In this case, the team advocating this model said that the clock frequency aboard the Pioneer spacecraft, which was needed because they had to tell us what time they radioed into Earth so we could calculate how long it took the signal to get back, would change by only 1.5 hertz in 8 years. A very, very, very tiny amount, but it could fit into their model. Although the more data that they gathered, the more it got complicated, and it was eventually really, really complicated. All of these were actually possible. Unlikely, perhaps, but possible. It turned out they weren't what was going on, but they were still possible. 
and then you get into the pseudoscience, the explanations for stuff that had already been shown to be wrong for other reasons, but they were reappropriated by their proponents to explain the pioneer anomaly. The two main ones that I'd seen are Planet X and the Electric Universe. Planet X was invoked simply as the accelerative force that slowed the craft down, making them be closer to the sun than they actually should have been. The problem with that is that it's easily calculable how far away the planet would need to be, or how massive it would need to be. You have to assume one or the other to do the calculation. And when you do the math, the planet would have had to have been visible and affect other objects in the solar system in obvious ways. And it didn't. Also, the accelerative force was reasonably constant, but it should have changed if it were a planet as the planet orbits the sun over many years. Electric Universe is something that I have not addressed on this podcast, though I'll dip my toes into it in an upcoming episode on the claims of James McCanny. The basic premise of EU, what it's called for short, is that everything in the universe has an electric charge and runs off of electricity. The sun doesn't shine through fusion, comets don't shine because they sublimate and reflect sunlight, planets move through an electric field and it does stuff, it's all very complicated, but it has a rather large following among a few French people. One of the proponents of EU, Wallace Thornhill, wrote, quote, After launch, a spacecraft accepts electrons from the surrounding space plasma until the craft's voltage is sufficient to repel further electrons. Near Earth, it is known that a spacecraft may attain a negative potential of several tens of thousands of volts relative to its surroundings. So, in interplanetary space, the spacecraft becomes a charged object moving in the sun's weak electric field. Being negatively charged, it will experience an infinitesimal tug towards the positively charged sun. Of most significance is the fact that the voltage gradient, that is the electric field, throughout interplanetary space remains constant. In other words, the retarding force of the spacecraft will not diminish with distance from the sun. This effect distinguishes the electrical model from all others because all known force laws diminish with distance. This effect is real, and it will have a fundamental impact on cosmology and spacecraft navigation because Pioneer 10 has confirmed the electrical model of stars. End quote. If that all sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, but a little bit of ether cosmology mixed in, it is. More on why in future episodes. For the moment, though, perhaps it's easiest to make a comparison with episode 69, the solar neutrino problem. In that episode, the claim was that we didn't find the right amount of neutrinos from the sun to have its energy explained by fusion for a star of its age. Therefore, God did it 6,000 years ago. But rather than give up science and turn to religion, this anomaly led us to a completely new model of neutrinos, that they have mass, and therefore can change type, and when we observed the right number of neutrinos across all three types to account for fusion, the neutrino problem was solved, and another god of the gaps was closed. That's what happened for the pioneer anomaly as well, and in 2012, the problem was solved. Heat. To understand this, we have to go back to how the spacecraft were constructed. They were unique among other missions, even a spin-stabilized craft like New Horizons, which is on its way to Pluto now. The craft were both made so that the antenna needed to talk to Earth was on one side, and pretty much all of the science instruments were on the other side. Same as with other spacecraft, but this was spin-stabilized. 
What makes it different from New Horizons is that the power source, the radioisotope thermoelectric generators, or RTGs, were way far away from the spacecraft body. They were connected via struts and cables to the main spacecraft. This meant that all of the unknown and complicated heat patterns from the RTGs on the oddly shaped spacecraft can pretty much be ignored. Unlike New Horizons, where the RTGs are on the body of the spacecraft, as are most other spacecraft built today. The actual theoretical explanation of heat being the cause of the anomaly was suggested back in 1998, but unfortunately we didn't have the telemetry records of the spacecraft temperature, nor could we create a detailed thermal or heat model of the spacecraft with the 1998 technology. And the thermal models at the time said that the effect should decrease, which hadn't yet been observed. Over the next 14 years, these problems were solved. Telemetry records were found, so we now knew how hot some parts of the spacecraft were and how much power they were using. Thermal models were built inside rapidly better computer programs and rapidly better computer processors, and these models could be tested against telemetry data. Many groups converged at the same answer, but it's the 2012 paper by Slava Turyshev and others that's most often cited. The term is thermal recoil force. The only way the spacecraft can lose heat is by radiating photons, just like the sun, only much, 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 much colder and so slower. Since the instruments are fed power by the RTGs, and they are all on one side of the spacecraft, the radiation is anisotropic meaning that it's not uniform in direction. Isotropic would be it's uniform in all directions, like kind of when it's raining in the southern United States. Most of this is going to be radiated away from the spacecraft from the instruments on only one side, effectively in the direction opposite the antenna. And since the antenna is facing Earth, that means that these photons are being radiated more away from Earth than towards it. And photons have momentum meaning that they can push with a certain amount of force. This was first actually theorized by Kepler back in 1619 as an explanation for why a comet's tail always faces away from the sun, even though half the time the comet is moving away from the sun, meaning that it's effectively chasing its tail. Because photons have momentum and thus exert a force, we call the phenomenon radiation pressure. And, just like thrusters, this emitting of photons preferentially from one side of the Pioneer spacecraft is going to give you an equal and opposite force, as per Newton's third law of motion. Putting it all together in perhaps, hopefully, maybe simpler terms, the spacecraft is slightly hotter on one side, it emits light from that side, which gives it a tiny thrust in the opposite direction, towards Earth, which, at the distance of the Pioneer spacecraft, is towards the Sun. The reason that we needed that telemetry and those precise thermal models is because the exact locations of where it was hotter will vary the exact anisotropic direction of the heat. When all of these models were done and published, they agreed with each other and predicted the Pioneer anomaly to about 80%, or at least the Turyshev model was to 80%. Then they analyzed all other sources of uncertainty and possible amounts of measurement error. When they plot their prediction and a one-sigma uncertainty ellipse, and they plot the data and its one-sigma uncertainty ellipse, the two one-sigma uncertainty ellipses overlap. That means that even though their model was only 80% of the observed value, with the uncertainty factored in, it's more like 
80 plus or minus 30% versus 100 plus or minus 40%. Since they overlap, we're good. And also keep in mind that one sigma uncertainty is about the same as a 70% confidence level, meaning that if we were to make the observations another 100 times, about 70% of those times what we observe would be in that range. This is one of those rare cases where I do actually recommend reading the paper, and I've linked to a free version of it in the show notes. It's five pages long, and the abstract is very readable, as are the conclusions. It's a good example of how science is done. I've put off doing this episode for a long time because there are a lot of sacred cows in it, and I wanted to make sure that I at least tried to do it some justice. Hopefully I've done that. I like the tale or the saga of the pioneer anomaly because it's another example of the triumph of science over pseudoscience, in contrast with what very well may have been in new physics or revised physics. We had an observation, one on an experiment the likes of which we had never done. The precepts of science were followed by many, and various explanations were offered. Some involved modifications to the laws of physics as we know them, but they were ones that at least worked in concert with, and not against, previous observations. For example, even though Mond would change how we thought of gravity, it still could easily account for every single previous observation and experiment with gravity. That's in contrast with the pseudoscientific explanations like Planet X and the Electric Universe, which have been debunked for years, if not decades, but still have ardent believers who were desperate to incorporate some legitimate science into their model. Look, look, they cried, the pioneer anomaly fits right in, exactly as our model predicts. Unfortunately, no calculations or actual predictions were included, or they were included very, very, very rarely. Again, in contrast with legitimate scientific pursuits. And then came the big reveal, something that happened within the lifetime of this podcast. I couldn't have done this episode in my first year of podcasting. It turned out that known effects, known physics, when accurately modeled, could completely account for what was observed, at least within the measurement uncertainty. Even though the actual explanation might sound just as much like technobabble as the pseudoscientific ones, it's not, and it has effects and evidence completely outside of the pioneer anomaly. And just like other examples, such as the solar neutrino problem offered up by young Earth creationists years ago as proof positive that they were correct, the pseudoscientists weren't. This episode's question comes from Brandon from Georgia, USA, who asked, My question is regarding solar conditions. How is it that the surface temperature is colder than the core, or the corona? I'm fine with the reduction in temperature from core to surface, but how does it heat back up again, leaving the surface all the way to the corona? To answer this question, I need to back up a bit for those listeners who have no idea what we're talking about or what he's asking. The Sun, our nearest star, unless you count a cloaked nemesis that emits no light, no gravity, no heat, no nothing except shows up in a few amateur photos and videos every now and then, is divided into several different layers internally. And these aren't arbitrary divisions just for the sake of dividing things up. Completely different things happen in those layers. In the center is the core, which is defined as the only area where nuclear fusion can take place because that's the only region where it's hot enough and the pressures are high enough for it to happen. 
it's about uh, 10 to 25 percent the radius of the sun depending on what numbers you look up and it gets up to nearly 16 million kelvins i'll be covering that more in a future episode about the iron sun out from the core is the radiative zone an area where it's still really really hot and really really dense but fusion can't occur it's not really hot and really dense enough the energy simply streams outwards the temperature here drops from about 7 million kelvins at the outer core to about 2 million at the outer radiative zone, which is out to about 70% of the way to the surface. Out from that is the convection zone, which is where the sun's material actually swirls up and down like giant conveyor belts, much like the Earth's mantle. This is a much more efficient way to move heat, and temperature drops from 2 million kelvins to the surface temperature of the star, about 5,700 kelvins. Which gets us to the photosphere, the effective surface. The photosphere is not a surface that you could walk on, it's not solid, but it's where the sun is finally low enough density that it no longer is opaque to visible light, and so the light streams off from it, hence photo, light, sphere, meaning sphere. The light sphere is what we observe as the sun. But the sun doesn't stop there. It has what can be thought of as an extended atmosphere, and that's where it gets kind of weird. The atmosphere, which is only visible if you block out the sun, and therefore before space telescopes it was only visible during total solar eclipses, has five layers itself. The temperature minimum, the chromosphere, transition region, corona, and heliosphere. The heliosphere is what extends out from the sun until it meets the heliospheres of other stars. The Voyager spacecraft are starting to pass out of the sun's heliosphere now. The temperature minimum region is about 500 kilometers thick, and it's as cool as about 4,100 kelvins, cool enough for simple molecules to exist, like carbon monoxide or even water. Above that is the chromosphere, which comes from the Greek word chroma for color, because it's visible as a flash of color just before and just after totality during a total solar eclipse. It's about 2,000 kilometers thick, about the size of the continental United States if I'm using very round numbers, and it starts to increase in temperature from the minimum to about 20,000 kelvins, practically three and a half times hotter than the photosphere. Then there's a 200 kilometer transition region where the temperature increases to 1 million kelvins, which is the base of the corona, which reaches 1 to 2 million kelvins, but gets as hot as 8 to 20 million kelvins. And herein lies Brandon's question. How the heck does it get so hot? And that's my paraphrasing. When I was in college, which was just a bit ago, there was no answer. This was just one of those many mysteries. Sure, there were a lot of ideas, things like acoustic waves, fast and slow magnetic body or surface waves, alpha waves, current dissipation, microflares, mass particle flows, and magnetic flux emergence, magnetic carpets, magnetic reconnection, the list kind of goes on. This is one of the many reasons why we have launched solar observatories into space, to try to figure out some of these mysteries. One thing it has going for it is that the corona is very, very thin. It has very little mass. So if you have the same heat input to, say, a giant pot of water versus a giant pot of air, you're going to much more quickly heat the air than the water because there's so much less mass there to heat. So even though it's outside of the opaque part of the sun and is a larger volume, it doesn't require that much energy, only about 1 40,000th of the amount of light energy that actually escapes the sun is needed to heat it. 
but we still don't really have a theory that's well-tested and is better than all the others. At the moment, the two leading candidate hypotheses are wave heating and magnetic reconnection. The planned NASA mission Solar Probe Plus, now planned for 2018, is intended to get within 10 solar radii of the sun and test the models. In recent years, the magnetic reconnection idea has been gaining traction, the very basic and simplified idea being that magnetic fields loop out from the sun and create electric currents in the corona. When they suddenly collapse, for whatever reason, they release all of their built-up energy as heat and wave energy, heating the corona. I don't want to get more into that explanation because it's very, 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 very far from my field of expertise and I probably already made an error, but I've provided several links in the show notes for interested parties. But bringing it all back, the answer is that we really don't quite have an answer yet. Some good ideas seem to work, but none have been shown conclusively to be the exclusive case. So that wraps up this Q&A segment, a rather long one. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Feedback this week, just a little bit related to last episode, the fake story of Planet X Part 9. No one seems to have written in, at least, to uh, say that they figured out that the opening was meant to be a parody of the 1990s television series Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, which starred Kevin Sorbo. I was able to obtain the opening credits music, and I used the opening mantra and simply twisted it slightly to work for Marshall Masters. The original goes kind of like, this is the story of a time long ago, a time of myth and legend, when the ancient gods were petty and cruel, and they plagued mankind with suffering. One man dared to challenge their power, he would be Hercules, and then triumphant music stuff. Anyway, I personally thought that it was hilarious, uh, but if you didn't get the joke, perhaps you were left thinking it was just kind of stupid. Or even if you did get the joke, perhaps you also thought that it was stupid, but regardless, for those of you who were wondering, that's what it was. There are three announcements this episode. First is that I'm releasing my first movie at the end of the month. I want to thank Stu, Derek, Roberts, Dave, Steve, Keith, Mike, Gavin, Irene, Dave, and Rick so far for their feedback on earlier versions. I'm near a final one now to be posted on May 31st, and there are still a few tweaks to be made. The next episode will be a more in-depth discussion of the movie, or at least the topic, and it will be released in the podcast feed and on YouTube, or at least the movie will be released on YouTube and in the podcast feed. The podcast episode discussing the topic in more detail will only be on the podcast feed. There we go. I swear I script these out, but I still screw them up. Anyway, you can head over to YouTube now and see the trailer, and also a big thanks to Steve Gibb for the very dramatic music. The second announcement is that my interview on Above Top Secret's ETS Live internet radio show was postponed a week, so it's actually this Saturday night, that is May 24th, as I quickly look at the calendar. Um, I may be a first-hour panelist. I will be on the second hour as the guest, and so I'll be doing most of my talking then. And I may stay on for the third hour to be a panelist as well. Regardless, unlike my last interview on Reality Remix, I will try to record this one and post it online if I'm able, so watch the blog for a link to that. Um, I don't know entirely what the topics that we will be discussing will be, but I do know that we'll be talking about Bob Lazar and John Lear. If any of you are into ufology, I am sure that you've heard of Bob Lazar, 
and I discussed John Lear on a previous episode, I think somewhere around podcast episode 18-ish or so. Finally, I want to remind people that I am on Facebook as Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy. I'm on Facebook personally, but I generally only accept friend requests from people I've actually met or interacted with more than just the folks listening to my voice a few times a month. Sorry, that's just kind of how it is. Uh, So, at the risk of being even more impersonal, I'm going to wrap up the episode. So for better or worse, that wraps up this topic for the 110th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you... where am I in my script? Oh yes, if you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment pretty much anywhere, including the page for this episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and am perpetually behind in responding. If you have suggestions for topics that I can address, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you like it, tell people.